It's The World This Week. The World This Week in partnership with The Daily Beast. Craig Kapitas is contributing editor at The Daily Beast. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you, Francois. Thank you so much. Vivian Waltz, Paris correspondent for Time Magazine. How's 2024 looking? So far, so good. Okay. Kedavon Gorgistani is, uh, uh, is with us here tonight, France 24 International Affairs Editor. Hi, Francois. How has the first 12 days gone? Uh, pretty busy, I have to pretty say. Pretty busy. Has it been busy for Ana Navarro Pedro, Paris correspondent for Portuguese They've media? They've been good so far. Okay. I'll take a leaf out of your book then. <laughs> uh, by the way, you can listen, like, and subscribe to The World This Week on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and other fine streaming services. The attacks on commercial shipping off Yemen had gone on for nearly two months. Now comes the response, an international coalition led by the U.S. and the U.K., hitting, according to the Pentagon, 60 targets in 16 locations, at least five killed in uh, Iran-aligned Houthi rebel strongholds. For the U.S. president, a largest so far attack by the Houthis earlier this week that was thwarted was the last uh, straw. There you see the official uh, statement uh, that came out from the White House. Uh, 12% of the world's commercial shipping passes through the Red Sea. The militia group, which since November 18th, in solidarity, it says, with the Palestinian cause, has been uh, launching those attacks, saying it will not back down. The Yemeni armed forces confirmed that they will continue to prevent Israeli ships going to the ports of occupied Palestine from navigating in the Arab and Red Seas. Uh, Vivian Walt, uh, we're, um, we've been seeing uh, that it's been disrupting uh, uh, shipping. We've been seeing how this has been sort of this sort of peripheral issue to the Israel-Gaza war. Is it peripheral now? No, certainly not. I mean, yes, it's peripheral <coughs> to the actual Gaza campaign, but it, in a sense, this simply the, this was a little bit in, inevitable that sooner or later you would have a kind of contagion through the region. Um, and this is sort of of another order because it's not simply about Israel and the Palestinians and Hamas. It really is the global economy and it's really kind of one of the lifelines of the global economy, um, you have already a huge impact on price increases, the, incre the oil is going up. Um, you're talking about like about 5,000 kilometer detour for ships, mm. for commercial ships to go around the tip of Africa um, in order to avoid the Red Sea. So this is a really big deal and possibly involving Iran, um, which, of course, takes us to another order. And it's the question of how much are countries like Iran and the United States dial this up on a Navarro page? And that's the big question. Uh, just to follow up on something you said, um, some uh, fish, uh, some shipping companies were putting on their, um, you know, you have um, radar for all the, 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 the boats, all the, the, the vessels on the sea, and they've put up these signs not related to Israel, not going for Israel or not related to Israel in order not to be attacked. Uh, so far, the Houthis, so they claim, and apparently the insurance companies also confirm somehow, they only have attacked ships that really have connection 
somehow with Israel, either, uh, either carrying um, merchandise to or from Israel or being related to ownership in Israel. A British company in the last hour has reported that uh, uh, a British uh, maritime insurance company has reported yes. that uh, there's been a, a ship carrying Russian oil that's been targeted. Uh, yes, uh, but now things have changed because they've said that every U.S. and uh, British um, um, vessel can be a target for the Houthis. But... Is Iran really behind everything they are doing? Is, are they really the, the ones holding the puppets and uh, pulling the strings? Probably not the whole way. Probably not the whole way. Um, it's too early for us. We are not there. I'm not there, so I can, I'm not interviewing people. And even if I were, I don't think I could have the whole truth. I don't none of us could have the whole truth. But uh, I think the situation is a bit more complex than, um, you know, just putting it in black and white. One, one side is totally wrong. The other side is totally um, good. Kedavan, we spoke to one Iran scholar earlier who was saying how, uh, one Yemen scholar earlier, who said that, uh, the Houthis do not, in this instance, take their marching orders from Tehran necessarily, and that uh, they've had a long-standing uh, policy of uh, solidarity with the Palestinians and of being very militant about it. Absolutely. And even uh, the Americans uh, sort of uh, tread lightly when it comes to uh, really blaming Iran for uh, those direct attacks. Now, they underlined every time that, uh, yes, the Iranians are the ones uh, delivering those weapons and helping out the Houthis. So in a way, they are responsible and they hold them accountable for what is happening, but they wouldn't say uh, that the Iranians were uh, likely behind the individual uh, strikes. Another thing that was extremely uh, interesting, there was a, a background call yesterday from White House and Pentagon officials uh, to explain those strikes. And in that explanation, there was uh, quite a bit of effort from the Americans to uh, try to explain that this was not a, a sort of attack. This was not escalation. They uh, sort of laid out over the past month all of the examples of international warnings to the Houthis to stop attacking ships in the Red Sea, uh, from the UN Security Council uh, to uh, the warning, that statement by a dozen of uh, countries, uh, to uh, the operation in the Red Sea, all of the events that where they were telling the Houthis you need to stop, otherwise there will be consequences, to eventually get to the point where we told them to stop, they didn't, and we retaliated, but they really tried to separate that and to show this as a sort of defense mechanism rather than something where they are trying to escalate what is happening, even though the result might be escalation. Yeah, and we're going to have the UN Security Council talking about it, and countries like Iran itself uh, have had muted reactions, relatively muted, warning that uh, this will only heighten tensions, but not going beyond that. Among those critical of the overnight strikes, NATO member Turkey, whose president denounces what he calls a disproportionate use of force. By using all of its force, Yemen's Houthis are saying they're giving and will give the necessary response in the region to America and England. They are saying that there is no room for the slightest lethargy here. At the moment, we are receiving different news from very different channels. And we are hearing from various channels that the Houthis are mounting a very successful defence, giving, giving a successful response to America and England. Yeah. 
farklı kanallardan alıyoruz. Kökopedis, it kind of surprised here it stated that bluntly that effectively uh, it sounds a bit like an endorsement there from uh, from Turkey's president. Yeah, the same thing was going on in the Bosphorus or the Dardanelles. Old tie-up wouldn't be uh, sounding like a member of Hootie and the Blowfish there. Look, you know, they might... Uh, this I, I saw that interview with your, your Yemen scholar. Uh, yeah, well, they're certainly getting their guns and ammo from the Iranians. The Iranians are into this up to, up to their neck, and it's the Russians as well. And... Uh, The arithmetic of this is 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 quite simple. Uh, the Iranians and the Russians don't care. They want to see dead bodies. Really? Yes, they do like causing mischief. Have you seen what's going on in Ukraine lately? Um, so they're going to keep causing problems there. And what's the West going to do? You're going to turn the place into a parking lot? I mean, this is what it's come down to. We have been having this discussion in this region. I mean, it's been going on since the Old Testament, quite frankly. Okay? <laughs> and remember, the only way you can defeat the Philistines is with the jawbone of an ass. But that doesn't work anymore because they tried that with Netanyahu. And that certainly didn't work. Okay? So this is going to go on. It's moving towards a full tilt boogie global war here. They're trying to knock off global trade. Anna Varpedro. Let's also see, maybe we don't uh, believe in coincidences in our profession, but there is something in the timeline of what is happening in the last 24 hours. It's, fun, it's weird. There was this oil tanker called St. Nicholas was arraigned or seized by Iran. Mm. He was transporting oil from Iraq to uh, Turkey, actually. And, um, to Turkey, that's, Turkey. that's an important point. Important point. Few hours, just like two or three hours after that, there was this emergency meeting uh, called by uh, British Prime Minister, uh, and it was uh, the beginning. Everybody went on to say that they were going to Uh, attack uh, Yemen, which is funny in military operations to tell beforehand what you are going to do. But that's a new thing this century. Uh, remember that this vessel was at the center of a row between mm. United States and Iran a few years ago. This vessel back in April, they were just back in cold, April. Cold, cold. It was 23 or 22. I think it was 2023. Oh, they, sorry. Yeah. Uh, so uh, he was carrying uh, um, Iranian petrol, oil, apparently. The United States seized the, uh, the ship and took the oil. And now putting that vessel right under the nose of the Iranians in the Amman Gulf, you know, um, at this time, I don't know who had that brilliant idea, but uh, I mean, maybe they could have thought twice. Or then, as some people are saying, this was a brilliant uh, maneuver in order for the United States and the United Kingdom to have a reason to What is the, clear yeah. is that, that, that they're the, the two concurrent events, on the one hand, uh, uh, what we've been talking about uh, in the Red Sea, but also Uh, the seizure uh, of that oil tanker. Well, it's got oil prices rising this uh, oh. Friday. Uh, Thursday's incident took place uh, close to the Strait of Hormuz between Oman uh, and Iran. Tankers have changed course reportedly. Uh, meanwhile, you have, again, this comes back to what we were saying at the outset, electric car maker Tesla saying it has to shut a factory outside Berlin 
for a few weeks because uh, there's a supply chain problem. Uh, and you can see on this map uh, what that supply chain problem is, uh, Vivian Walt. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you have, um, this will add weeks to the supply chain of any product. Um, and we get most of them from the source countries there in Asia. Um, but I just wanted to say in that, in that respect, what Craig was saying, I kind of agree that, um, you know, you don't have to have Iran lobbing missiles um, for this to be absolutely in Iran's interest. In fact, Iran, I think, is playing it brilliantly. They're supposedly staying out of it, but they have all their well-armed proxies who know exactly what to do. So even without them directing things day by day, um, they're deeply implicated in all of this. And of course, also have a motivation to see oil prices rise. And there's another Iran-backed group that's been in the headlines uh, this week, uh, this time at Israel's border. Senior Hezbollah commander Wissam Tawil uh, killed in South Lebanon by an Israeli strike. Here you see images of his Tuesday funeral. Uh, tensions there too have, have spiked Kedavan Gorgistani. Again, there's sort of the hand of Iran each time, uh, but it's not the center, of course, of, uh, of what the focus is, which is Israel's war with, uh, with Gaza. No, and uh, I totally agree with what you said, Vivian. The Iranians are involved because they are supporting these groups. So in a way they are involved, but they are not uh, necessarily as much the puppet masters as some people uh, want to see. They're not directing every single strike. They're not telling uh, every single group what to do, when uh, to do it. And uh, you saw that a little bit in uh, what uh, Hezbollah leader said in one of his uh, speeches uh, last week, uh, which was that, uh, yes, all these groups groups were sort of aligned in this axis and linked together uh, in a common sort of goal, but that they were not uh, necessarily coordinated their plans and they were definitely not giving or taking orders from any of these groups, including uh, Iran. So they're trying to sort of uh, separate each other from uh, these groups. And I don't know if that is the reason, but you also saw something that we've been talking about with the Houthis and the Iranians and the Americans coming from Hezbollah. We've also seen them saying there will be retaliation for killing our members. The consequences will be dire. You're going to see. We haven't really seen a huge change in the level of violence uh, across the border. Between, it got tense in the middle of the week it and got, now it's... And then it's sort of, it's boiling. Mm. But it hasn't fully uh, gone into uh, what they could do because Hezbollah has plenty of firepower, much more than what they've used so far. So there's there also a sort of we push, we lean back, we push, we lean back. And all of this is sort of we're looking one side. We were focused on uh, the Israel-Lebanon border uh, and we sort of lost track a little bit of the Red Sea. And now we're all of a sudden focused on the Red Sea again. Maybe it's going to blow up, flare up some, somewhere else, Iraq, Iraq, Syria. We saw some of uh, those strikes mm. there. So uh, there's this sort of, uh, you know, these things pop up. And again, going to the point of the Iranians are sitting there watching and enjoying the sight because, as you said, they're not getting directly involved necessarily, mm -hmm. but they're reaping the benefits uh, without having to do much. But, Craig Capitas. Uh, you know, only diplomats and, and journalists can make the 
oh, they're just a little bit pregnant argument and get away with it. <laughs> okay, uh, you know, enough of this. Uh, the Iranians and the Russians are the dramaturgists in this thing. If the Iranians and the Russians were, were, were taken out of the picture on this, this, this wouldn't be happening. It would probably be more likely that there'd be some sort of peace and stability in, in the region. Uh, Pax Americana in the region. Well, you know something? The world has worst. always operated on empires. Peace, love, and brown rice, okay? It, it does. That's the real politique of the situation. Yeah. And the fact of the matter is, at least where I come from, you know, I, I'd rather be with a secular democracy than with a bunch of wackos, okay, fighting over 7th century religious nonsense, whether that religious nonsense is Islamic or Jewish, or Zoroastrian, or whatever. But what, what, what is getting tiresome, and I think the world is getting tired of it, certainly the American public and the Western public, is this, oh, well, they're just a little bit pregnant. Oh, the Iranians didn't do anything last but week, so we is, could be okay. They're into this up to their necks, and they have been for decades. Ana Navarro Pedro. The thing is that, uh, the problem is that if they are totally pregnant, <laughs> use your expression, if they are up to this in the neck, is because they, the analysis, the current analysis is the American empire is going down. And so this is the time where everybody attacks. Of course, there's another protagonist. And that's when, and that's when world wars happen. Read the guns exactly. of August. Okay, exactly. this, this is, totally this is on when the same they happen. Page. All right, there's another protagonist in all this, and that's Israel, which is uh, having its day in court over the war in Gaza, South Africa. A fellow member of the 1948 Genocide Convention lodging the charge that with more than 23,000 killed since October the 7th in the Gaza Strip after that surprise attack by Hamas, Israel's campaign uh, has aimed to bring about, quote, the total destruction of Gaza's population. South Africa unequivocally condemned the targeting of civilians by Hamas. That said, no armed attack on a state territory, no matter how serious, even an attack involving atrocity crimes, can provide any justification for or defense to breaches to the convention, whether as a matter of law or morality. Israel's response to the 7th of October 2023 attack has crossed this line. Vivian Waltz, is this a debate society discussion or does this matter, what's happening before yeah. the International uh, Court of Justice? I mean, I think in some ways it certainly matters. Firstly, let's just look at the kind of historical, you know, importance mm -hmm. of this. You have South Africa, you know, 30 years after the end of apartheid, and it really was forged on a concept of transitional justice, truth and reconciliation. They invented it practically. So for them, it's a really big moment. And if you read the South African papers today, they just there's just this astonishing amount of like national pride at being, you know, at taking this to the International Court of Justice. Um, the real problem, I think, of both sides um, is proof. And you know, the Genocide Convention determine it rests on a, on a principle of intent and for south africa they have to prove that israel intended genocide not just that they're killing way more civilians that they than they ought to do and that they're that they have you know 
extremists in their cabinet that essentially spout genocidal uh, statements. Um, but they have to prove that the military campaign is intended to be a genocidal one. And I think South Africa is an uphill battle trying mm. to prove that. All right. This Friday was Israel's turn to respond. The deputy attorney general, uh, Gilad Noam, acknowledging the tragic, tragic consequences for civilians on both sides, but denying intent to kill all the Palestinians and dismissing uh, the failure to address Hamas's own charter, which calls for the destruction of Israel. Ultimately, entertaining the applicant's request will not strengthen the commitment to prevent and punish genocide, but weaken it. It will turn an instrument adopted by the international community to prevent horrors of the kind that shocked the conscience of humanity during the Holocaust into a weapon in the hands of terrorist groups who have no regard for humanity or for the law. Anavar Pedro? Um, I heard, uh, well, today was uh, Israel's turn. There are only two days of hearings. Uh, there is no contradiction, no, no justice battle in this. The judges are going to, you know, to, to think they, have, they don't have a timeline, they don't have a deadline Perhaps. to take a decision. Uh, there are 15 judges and they are, uh, five are from the Security uh, Council um, and United Nations. So we know them, France, England, um, United States, China and uh, Russia. And then we have 10 more. Um, but the thing is, um, I heard the, the, how they, they constructed their case in uh, the South Africans, and it was not bad at all, because it's the first time jurists are saying, it's the first time there are some proof for the ones who are accusing a country or a government of genocide, that there is some proof of some intent. And so they brought up all the declarations from Netanyahu, from ministers, from uh, um, generals or from um, army officers, from um, parliament parliamentarians, deputies, etc., um, which are also angry declarations and which are also um, um, revenge declarations, but there is definitely in what they put next to each other on that court of justice, there are all the time this uh, line of uh, erasing Gaza, erasing uh, Gazians, and uh, destroying. But, there, um, but there's not premeditation. There was that it was is Hamas the point. Who that is the point. I mean, but now if you say it beforehand, if you are saying it now and carrying on oper military operations afterwards, is this a point of case or not? Kedvan Gorgistani? There's another point because the the whole question of whether it's a genocide or not that is likely going to take years yeah. uh, to uh, figure out. But there is an under lying more concrete and more urgent request that the court will rule on, that is the request by the South Africans to order that Israel immediately halt its operations in uh, Gaza. And that is something that the court has said they will take up and likely will decide in a matter of weeks. Now, symbolically, if they do require Israel to halt their operations, it would be a sort of PR blow, if you will, to the Israelis. But while it is legally binding, there's not really a mechanism to enforce that against the Israelis, except the possibility of UN sanctions, except that takes us back to the UN Security Council, 
where there is a U.S. veto, and the Americans have been dead set against this whole South African effort uh, at uh, the ICJ, and they are likely to veto any attempt to sanction the Israelis. So, uh, symbolically, it would not be good for uh, Israel's uh, standing on the international stage, uh, but it wouldn't really change anything for the people uh, of Gaza because the fighting would continue. Mm. It would have been much better if the if if the uh, South African government, a bastion of of democracy and liberalism, <laughs> and of course clean living, could prove uh, went to the Hague to show that they could you know chew gum and walk at the same time, and brought the same charges against Russia for what they did in Ukraine. But of course, yeah. oh no, they they couldn't do that because they're all very chummy with the Russians. Uh, you know, it's grandstanding. I mean, I understand it. Very nice of them to do it. But it has sparked an important discussion. For instance, the difference between what is genocide versus what is just simply war crimes. I know both are horrific, but it it's... It doesn't... I, I, I think it goes back to what you said originally. This is something for a debate class. You know, this is war. And in war, the victors are the ones who, who make the, the rules and who's guilty. I just do but, think, however, that... Um, it nonetheless kind of ratchets up the pressure a little bit, especially on the U.S. I mean, you have Blinken the very same day um, in the Middle East, sort of, and he's trying to thread this needle, which is getting kind of What's narrower do, and Viv? narrower. What's he going to do, Which is um, what I don't understand. What I don't understand here, okay, and please, someone educate me, mm-hmm. is why Netanyahu, who's the problem in all this, is still there. I explain to me why this guy has not been defenestrated. I mean, I'm going to miss how his smile lights up every room he walks into, but this is where the problem is. The I mean, you're 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 the problem the problem is not in the Hague. The problem is not in all the is debate society stuff. The problem is Benjamin Netanyahu, who's just as bad as the friggin' mullahs in, in this instance. But well, the, I, I think it goes back to what I was saying, is that the U.S. is trying to basically have it both ways, you know, keep the government kind of stable there, um, tell them that they back them totally, not, it's, but, but they it's have an independent to state. Are you saying Israel's the 51st right. we'll, we'll, state? We'll, we'll see. We'll see. <laughs> I mean, I, this is what I, I don't get. Why is he there? Someone Very call us. Why? Let's do another debate. Why <laughs> yeah. question? Why is he still there? Much more we could say on this. We'll, we'll move on for now because it's been a busy week here domestically. Remember when Emmanuel Macron ran for president at 39? Now in his term-limited second mandate, without a majority in parliament, with polling stuck in the doldrums, he's gone and appointed France's youngest ever prime minister. Gabrielle Attal taking the reins from the technocratic Elisabeth Borne in her 20 months on the job. She dutifully pushed through unpopular pension and immigration reforms. Enter the 34-year-old Attal, whose political rise has been meteoric. It's been said over the last few hours, I've read it and I've heard it, that the youngest French president in history appoints the youngest prime minister in history. I want to see this as a symbol of boldness and of action. All right, so uh, Tuesday was uh, uh, Gabriel Attal day. Uh, then, after days of haggling, uh, Emmanuel Macron uh, convening this Friday a first cabinet meeting with the new cabinet. They're in a smaller room there, you can see. Uh, uh, and uh, there he is giving his marching orders. 
Very well. The government's gathered. Let's get to work. Uh, Vivian Walt, is this Gabriel Attal? Again, it's the question we ask each time there's a new prime minister. He may be 34, but is he the prime minister or the chief of staff? Well, you know, there he is at the table with these, you know, with his cabinet, um, you know, most of whom are old, are old enough to be his mothers and fathers. Um, it is a little bit odd. Um, then again, he's a breath of fresh air. He's new energy. He's, you know, new blood. Maybe he's not a get, new face anymore. I mean, he's, he's been, certainly not a new he's face. He's been, uh, for the last six, close to seven years, a mainstay of every government. And I'm sure two days into the job, he's already greatly missing his old job as Minister <laughs> of Education. I mean, what a terrible job to have. The prime minister in a government where they don't have the majority in the National Assembly, where everything is going to be a fight to get through, um, and he is going to be blamed for everything. So, you know, whereas, like, everybody says, so oh, he's obviously the successor to Macron, he could find this um, as a real kind of negative in the end. Exactly. And speaking of youth, uh, the new government also including the youngest foreign minister in living memory, uh, Stéphane Séjourné, who, uh, by the way, uh, was in a civil union with uh, the new uh, prime minister. We have the first openly gay prime minister of, uh, of France. And so he's off to Ukraine on Saturday. Uh, your, your thoughts on, on, on this, this cabinet, with the, the, there's this, um, these youthful well, figures. There is this, this youthful, yes, uh, nomination, there is something weird. I mean, I don't know if in Portugal the prime minister had, had uh, designed his uh, partner to be minister of foreign affairs. That would be a scandal. It's his home. former partner. Former partner, yeah. Apparently well, they're on That's what they say, it's former, we don't know. Um, anyway, it, it would be a scandal. Even if he's the most competent person for the job, that would be a scandal at home, but maybe we are all Are you suggesting and that the school. French press isn't talking about it enough? <laughs> the French press is not talking about it. <laughs> uh, but uh, but um, on the other hand, the thing is, is he good for the job? I mean, he just left. There are going to be elections. He, he was heading the Renew uh, Party at the uh, European Parliament. And uh, he just left right before a big battle for elections in, um, you know, in European Parliament. So that is not a, a very good sign either. Um, but let's wait and see. This is a very weird, uh, very weird uh, um, choice of people anyway in France these days. Very weird choice. Kedevan Gorgistani. I think this government, this new government, when you look at it, uh, first of all, it was supposed to be a, a reshuffle. You're seeing a lot of the same faces. Now, we talked about some of the new ones, but uh, you have Bruno Le Maire still there. Gérard Darmanin is still there. Uh, Dupont Moretti, the justice minister, is, is still there. And there are three things that are very clear in this government that were sort of the focus of the previous governments of Emmanuel Macron. Uh, equality between men and women, yes, in numbers, but all the ministères régaliens, as we call them here in France. All the big jobs. The big jobs the economy, justice, interior, all of those are men. And now uh, foreign affairs, he's young, but he's a man. So White men. White men also. <laughs> so gone is the parité uh, for the women. And the women are uh, put back into the ministries that often are referred to as the gendered ministries, where you see women usually. Health, education. Health, education, culture. Uh, so that's gone. 
Then there is, gone is the en même temps between the left and the right. This one is tilting way to the right with, as we see here, Rachida Dati, who is from the opposition, has been super critical of Emmanuel Macron among les Républicains. And so you're seeing a rightward tilt. And finally, gone are the technocrats, the people whose job it is, who, has, who have been there, like Catherine Colonna, a veteran diplomat. You have politicians that are back in some of these uh, positions, like Rachida Dati. Uh, so all the elements that made for uh, the, the sort of new Macron governments in the past kind of... Yeah, you mentioned Rachida Dati, quick domestic politics rabbit hole. She's a, a surprising nomination. She had been a justice minister under Nicolas Sarkozy. Uh, poached from the Conservative Les Républicains Party, named culture minister. The choice is surprising because the tabloid favorite is also under investigation <laughs> in one of the cases involving former Renault boss Carlos République. The Fifth Republic has ensured that culture in France is not just another commodity. And that's what we call the cultural exception. Now everyone knows that I like to fight. Don't be scared. She's someone who, who grabs headlines. Uh, she's supposed to run for mayor of Paris in 2026. She's yeah, well, you know, the thing about, the thing about Macron and, and, and the new mini menu, who I think we should give a chance here, is Ma Macron has always struck me as being very anxious to sit on every chair at the same time and has not really succeeded in firmly sitting on any of them. He... he he tries to be too many things to, 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 to too many people. He's young and hip. He's old and fussy. Uh, I, I always remember that incident, which I think always said more about him than any other incident, when that little kid went up to him and called him Manu, and he got really upset. Well, piss off, Macron. <laughs> I mean, come on. I, th this is the whole thing. So, so I, I think we have to give you know Gabby Boy here a, a, a chance. Uh, I, I you know, and perhaps he can. But he's what he's going to have to do is overshadow, you know, Macron. And I don't, you know, and the French Imperium yes, doesn't like happen. that. I yeah, think yes, I think you are willing to give uh, Gabriel Attal, a new prime minister, a chance. I don't think Macron is willing to do that. He just yeah. cannot do it. It's well, just what we not know in is his that temperament. First major speech is by the president, not the prime minister, at the beginning <laughs> of next week. Uh, when a popular anti-corruption crusader was assassinated in Ecuador on the presidential campaign trail, <laughs> few outside the Americas took notice. Now the whole world paying attention after massive weekend jailbreaks that included the brief takeover of a private television station. Uh, dozens of prison guards are still being held hostage. At the heart of it, plans to move the leader of Los Choneras drug gang, Adolfo Macias, to a high-security facility, better known as Fito. He's not been seen since the weekend. It all started in Ecuador's largest city, Guayaquil. The violence has been across the country, forcing businesses and schools to shut. The newly elected president insists he will not blink, though. Today I present the approved designs for the realization of the detention centers in Pastaza and Santa Elena. This is one more step towards controlling terrorism and organized crime. He, by the way, is 36 years old. I was just about to uh -huh. say another 30-something <laughs> leader, yeah, with a little bit more power than Gabriel Atal. Yeah, think. but what's going on in Ecuador? 
Well, you know, it's funny because Ecuador for, for quite a while was seen as this kind of peaceful place. Um, uh, of course, it never quite was. Um, but and a lot of what has been happening sort of under the surface has exploded to the surface. Um, it's become a major transshipment point of cocaine. So, you know, you have, as other countries in the region um, essentially deal with uh, the drug trafficking a little bit more efficiently, say like Colombia, um, you have Ecuador essentially filling a vacuum. I think that's, that is one yeah, way. Yeah, drug traffickers go where, where it's easiest to export their goods. Not only that, they, they, they take the upper hand in the countries where the state is getting weaker and weaker and weaker. And now this is maybe a warning for all the people, all the liberals, or, uh, ultra-liberals who are saying that the um, liberal in French in Europe is um, it's, uh, right-wing, <laughs> if you want, uh, who are saying that uh, uh, we should have less and less and less state. Uh, in uh, in the resp in in the, the things of the Repub of the or, or, or in the public affairs, it's not possible because they will fill the void. And let me tell you something else. Some time ago, we've heard some American senators calling for the invasion of Mexico by the U.S. Army in order to fight the drug cartels, who they say True. are supplying uh, the drugs. You know, the zombie drugs going fentanyl, I believe, in the United States. And at the time, I spoke with some military from Europe and they told me, you know, the problem if they would ever do something so silly would be uh, would be not the Mexican army, it would be the gangs, the, the cartels' armies. They are now trained and, um, and disciplined and armed, you know, like, like army. state armies. Yeah. Well, we've seen this movie before. Uh, uh, Felipe Calderon in Mexico, when he came into office in 2006, said he was going to take on the drug cartels, and mm -hmm. it was there was huge bloodshed across the country. Is President Noboa in Ecuador making the same mistake? He could be. You know, this is Tony Montana country. We have seen this movie many, mm -hmm. you know, many times before. Uh, no one's ever been able to control it because the money is just so big. And Anne is right. The amount of weaponry, the sophisticated weaponry these drug cartels have now, and the feckless uh, uh, ability of any government to take these people out, you know, because they act with impunity. This is the whole thing. And the Mexican government has been proven to be corrupt. How many dead journalists have we seen down there uh, who, have, who have pointed this out and have ended up under garbage cans on the streets? Uh, perhaps this, this, this young guy in, in Ecuador can do something about it, but he's got to come down hard on these guys. The guns come in and, of course, the cocaine goes out to places like the port of Antwerp and to Europe, not just to the United States. That's the thing. I mean, he has to deal with the cartels inside his country. But as you were saying, there is Colombia and Peru just around, and they are the world's largest producer of cocaine. And they mm -hmm. want to send that cocaine by the fastest route. And now it's going through Ecuador to go to Europe and to the United States that also consumes a lot of that cocaine. And so you're seeing him trying, I mean, does he have a choice besides saying we're going to crack down and go full force on mm -hmm. the cartels? Probably not. Uh, the Americans are dispatching uh, top officials to Ecuador uh, in the coming days to try to figure out how they can help in this uh, new war on drugs. We've heard that mm. also, that expression uh, before, uh, because 
they see also that they need to help the countries and the leaders who are trying to do something uh, succeed. Otherwise, he's going to be taken over the same way other countries Which have. they've been trying to do since the 1970s. Mm -hmm. Well, but, you know, mm -hmm. we'll, we'll, yeah. you know we'll, yeah. I'm wondering, will the cocaine be able to transit the Suez Canal and the Red Sea, you know, <laughs> in the Straits of Hormuz? Going I mean, full circle are, there. Questions. Uh, well, thankfully, no one was hurt. But after tragedies that befell the models of the 777, the earlier ones, Boeing's got explaining to do about the fuselage door that flew off an Alaska Airways flight shortly after takeoff from Portland, Oregon. The plane turned back, and after several days, the door was eventually recovered. Um, I, I got a call from a friend of mine um, yesterday, late afternoon, suggesting that I check my backyard because people were still looking for the door and it hadn't been found yet. And I thought, yeah, sure. It's not very likely that it's in my backyard, so I didn't do anything for a while. But I finished my preparations for the week and I thought, well, okay, I should go out and check. And sure enough, it was in Bob's backyard. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the aviation industry is really pretty bizarre. I mean, you have this company, of course, it's not going to go bankrupt. It's like 150 billion dollar company. It's too big to fail. Exactly. It's too big to fail. And there's only two, really, in the world. Yeah. Um, that make commercial airlines. Yeah. Airbus and Boeing. That's it. And a little <coughs> bit of a Chinese company yeah. who are producing this enormously growing market for commercial airlines. So, and, and it, what's striking is we fly on airlines all the time, all of us, I'm sure regularly. Do we ever stop to think, what's the plane we're flying on? Yeah. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah. But it's never been safer. Anna. I mean, people were, were, every year we break numbers of numbers of uh, people t taking to the skies. So percentage-wise, it's pretty safe. Of course. It's probably by far yes, the safest still... way to travel, but it's pretty spectacular when it fails. Yeah. Craig Capitas, one of the problems at Boeing is they were based in Seattle, and there seems to have been this, over the year, this drift yeah. uh, away uh, from, uh, Anna Navarro-Pedro was talking about this push towards uh, uh, neoliberalism. Yeah. There was this drift where it was no longer engineers running the company, it was uh, the marketing and sales department. Marketing, sales, bankers, hedge funds, uh, uh, which is a, a big problem. One of the things that I had heard about Boeing, this goes back many years when they were drifting, as you were saying, out of Seattle. When you build an airplane, you want everyone in one place. Mm. I mean, they, they talk about a group project. This is not something you can do by phone or by home. You know, you have to have everyone around. And a lot of those units that were involved in creating the aircraft were, were no longer in the same place. And that, that, that's dangerous. You don't see that when they build a submarine. No, yeah. and the, another thing there, as you said, there are only two major uh, makers of airplanes yeah. in the world, and still they are outsourcing more and more of the job. This was actually uh, um, another company who, mm -hmm. who, who f fabricated and manufactured the the, um, the doors and um, the screws and uh, uh, that. There wasn't a design the, flaw; it was a manufacturing flaw in this case. It was a manufacturing flaw, but I mean they also have charges. They they also have to comply with the requirements, you know of keeping the prices down, and um, 
you know, they have problems with their, with the staff as well. So this is absolutely amazing. They have the whole world's market, and on top of it, they are still doing it as if there was a huge competition. This should be well, they want to see, over. They want to see what I've always called artificial growth. You know, they say, well, if mm. we have to have, I'm just taking a number out of the sky, mm. we have to have 10% growth every year. Yeah. Well, what's wrong with 3%, yeah. you know, yeah. if you're uh, uh, growth? Because they got to pay off these shareholders and stockholders. And if money, the bankers money, power, are greed, charged. and it just doesn't work when you're dealing with people's. By lives. the way, Kedavon Gorgiasani, most impressive. It wasn't. It wasn't just a door. There was headrests and stuff. Was uh, an iPhone that was still yeah. working that uh, uh, fell out of the sky. Uh, uh, one man going about his walk uh, found it. Uh, it was on. He turned off the airplane mode and deduced uh, by the messages that this was a passenger on board that flight. I mean, we're sort of laughing about it because nothing was really nothing really bad happened, and we can talk about these things. But, I mean, if that door had flown off at a much higher altitude, we would be talking probably about a few deaths at least. So in this case, nothing happened. And it's always these accidents, incidents that force those aircraft manufacturers, the authorities overseeing them to sort of look into how their protocols are done. And that's what the FAA is doing. They just announced that they were reviewing and maybe reconsidering uh, the fact that it is the manufacturers and the suppliers, their own employees, who check the validity of the security uh, procedures. Mm -hmm. And the FAA now is reconsidering that, saying that they might, there might need to be a third party oh, that yeah. checks all these security measures to be sure that it's separated from those manufacturers who, as we were all saying, uh, are looking more and more towards the profit and possibly less and less or putting to the side some of the security issues. How good those regulators are. We could talk about that for, for the whole <laughs> night. Too. But unfortunately, we're out of time. Kedavon Gorgiasani, I want to thank you. I want to thank as well Craig Capitas, Vivian Walt, Anna Navarro-Pedro. Thank you for being with us here in The World This Week. small mountainous island in the heart of East Asia with a rich and complex history. Taiwan's culture is shaped by its many indigenous groups, democratic values, and of course, China. How exactly does that close and increasingly conflictual relationship influence Taiwan's culture? And what role do the arts play in developing a uniquely Taiwanese identity? Find out in our special edition of Arts 24 in Taipei. Arts 24 on France 24 and France24.com.